0: All right. Very good. Thank you guys so much for uh, for having us for being here this morning. My name's Brian. And Jackie. I'm Jackie. We are missionaries in Paraguay. We've we're from Nashua, um, and we've been in Paraguay for just last month or this month. We celebrated 15 years. 15 years yeah. So we're very excited um, to live there. People say, "Oh, it's such a sacrifice," but for us, it's just like we just love it, and it's home. Uh, we've got four girls. They were not able to be re- released from the grip of their grandmother. Yeah. So uh, yeah. they're over in the Cape with uh, grandma and grandpa. And, um, and so you just got us today. So anyway, <laughs> um, we're going to show the video, but maybe before we could just give kind of like a, you want to talk a, a little bit about how we got to where we are, and and then they'll see the video.
1: Sure, yeah. So I um, was born in Nashua, New Hampshire, but I grew up in Venezuela, South America, where my parents were missionaries as well. And we were in a very small uh, village named Chapurana with about 500 people. So if you've ever seen Tarzan, I am Jane. And um, (laughs) I uh, left that. We did like carrying buckets of water on our head and cooking over open fires, and that was my childhood. And so for me, Paraguay is definitely my comfort zone. When I met Brian, he wanted to be a church planter in Maine, and that for me was terrifying. I was like, <laughs> is there snow there? What, how does that work? You know. So um, when he decided and you know, we started praying together and thinking about my background and Spanish speaking and kind of started heading towards South America, that was a huge relief for me because I was headed back home so um, we love paraguay we love raising our kids there we started as church planters and we helped start two churches in paraguay and we always talked about one day working with the orphan and vulnerable child and we had kind of talked about doing that in our retirement and maybe in africa because that's where we thought they all were and um, over the course of several years of church ministry we started realizing that they were in paraguay as well and we begin to learn their names and their faces. And that's not something that you can unsee or forget. And so we just felt burdened to really help churches there become active in working with the future generation for the orphan and vulnerable kid. And so um, Brian's gonna share more about that. We're gonna show a video which will talk about our ministry more in detail, but it's really just a great honor to be here. And I would love to talk more with each and every one of you afterwards. So thank you for having us. All
0: right. All right, uh, I'd like to invite you to take your Bibles with me to Isaiah chapter 1, Isaiah 1. And while you're doing that, I'll just kind of expand a little bit on what you saw in the video. Little Neighbors has three three branches. Our logo has r- really one plant and has three leaves. So the three leaves of Little Neighbors is the foster care program, uh, the adoption support program, and the mentoring program. Uh, one of the amazing ways that God has used us this year, we've, we've just since launching been able to serve 12, um, 12 young people, uh, some in foster care, uh, one young girl uh, working with her and her adoptive family, a 14-year-old girl, and uh, then a number of others through through the mentoring and aging out, because a lot of times in Paraguay, there's really, it's, it's almost like we, we call it the waterfall. They're about to f- flow off the waterfall once they reach 18 or 20 and who is their support person. And so, when I'm talking this morning about little neighbors and what we're doing in Paraguay, I want you also to be thinking about what's going on here locally, because as Jackie and I learned, in Paraguay, we were thinking about going to a different continent, a different country, and serving and working with orphaned and vulnerable children there. But what God showed us was that they're right there in our neighborhood in Paraguay. And the same thing can be said here, is you can think about, oh, let's uh, donate, or let's pray for, or let's think about the orphaned and vulnerable children in, in Paraguay. And I'll say to you that they're they're here with you. Because the answer for, for what the needs of an orphan or vulnerable child is, is not, anything but it is people it is relationship and f- from my point of view it is the local church um, there's nobody here that would say you know James one twenty-seven. if you've been in church very long you you're probably familiar with the verse that says the true religion is is to visit the the orphan and the widow in their need right nobody's going to argue with that and one of our family's favorite movies, Nacho Libre, would say, "You know, I, I hate all the orphans, right?" Was that when Esqueleto or something like that? He says, "Nobody's going to say that. That's ridiculous." But what are we doing for them? When James one twenty-seven says to visit them, for us, what we experienced when we were the directors in in an orphanage was the, the idea, the concept was, let's go plan a children's day event or Christmas event and we'll show up and we'll have clowns and a Bible study and candy and we'll do this big show and, and then pat ourselves on the back and come back next year maybe or in two years. But that's really not what visit means. When the Bible talks about God visited his people, It doesn't mean God showed up with candy and clowns and a cute story and disappeared, but when God showed up, when God visited us or visited his people, he made an impact. And many times, he sits with us in the sadness, in the heartbrokenness, and in the joys, and stays there for a minute, even in the awkward silence. And he sits there in that with us. And helps us to move on from it and so visiting can't mean just showing up with clowns and candy but it has to be something more than that so what we're seeing is the key to it is family the key to it is relationships the key to it is is building uh, showing modeling what a safe loving family what a safe loving mom a safe loving dad could mean to a child one of the things that we've seen time and time again, and it's true here, it's true in Paraguay, it's true everywhere, that a lot of kids who grow up in these situations, uh, in, in, in a children's home, a children's village, an orphanage, or whatever, they'll they'll get to be 18 or 20 or whatever the age is that they eventually leave, and and they fall off that waterfall, and they start their life independently, whether successfully or unsuccessfully or whatever, but they've never experienced what it is to live in a home where there's a, a mom that loves them, or a dad that loves them, or never seen what it is for a, a mom and a dad to not be in agreement, but not hit each other. And so, so then the only experience, the only, the only thing they've seen is violence and mistreatment, and so what happens is they repeat that if there's not any, upweather. because how did you learn? And those of us who are parents, we didn't learn how to parent, By necessarily going to a parenting class, well, maybe you went to a parenting class, but I assure you, the way that you parent is very similar, whether you want to admit it or not. Is all the things that I said about as a kid about my dad. I'm never going to do that, dad. That makes me so mad whenever dad does X, Y, or Z or reacts this way or that way. I'm never going to do that with my kids. I'm going to. What is exactly the thing that I do is exactly what mom and dad did with me, right? So we we we. We reach into our past experiences and and the way we were raised to to then raise our kids. And what if they've never seen what it is to be raised in a safe, loving family? How can we expect them to be the safe, loving adult if they were never loved that way? So I want to dive in now to to Isaiah one. And and so we we heard some pra- a prayer this morning that God would speak through the speaker and touch our hearts? Well, your heart's about to get touched, and, and maybe in a, in a challenging way, uh, maybe in a way that you weren't prepared for. Um, maybe uh, it, it'll be a little bit, uh, maybe a, a little jab to stir you to maybe do something more, to be something more, to become transformed. In a way that maybe we weren't expecting this morning, and maybe we were expecting pictures of, of cute little orphans from Paraguay. Uh, but really, I want to I want to challenge you, and I want to push. I want to push um, in maybe a way that that would be new uh, for you this morning. So let's look in Isaiah Isaiah chapter one, and we'll start reading in verse number two. Now Isaiah is a prophet to Israel, and he's. He's preaching to the people of Israel to tell them to repent because judgment's coming. And He's really going to lay in right here in the ver- first chapter of Isaiah. He's really going to lay in really hard to the people and really challenge them on some things. And I think we'll be, we'll be surprised as to exactly what He challenged them with. So, we're going to read a, a large portion, maybe, maybe first 10-12 verses. Um, and we'll start off in verse two, Isaiah chapter one, verse number two. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. I've nourished and brought you, cho- brought up children, and they've rebelled against me. The ox knows his master, uh, ox knows his owner, and the master, the ass, his master's crib. But Israel does not know. My people do not consider. O sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a seed of evildoers, children that are corruptors, they have forsaken the Lord, they have provoked the Holy One of Israel unto anger, they have gone away backward. Why should you be stricken anymore? Will you revolt? More and more, the whole head is sick, the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even unto the head, there is no soundness in it, but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. They've not been closed, neither bound up, neither mollified with ointment. Your country is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Your land Strangers devour it in your presence, and it is desolate as overthrown by strangers, and the daughter of Zion is left as a cottage in a vineyard, as a lodge in a garden of cucumbers, as a besieged city. Except the Lord of hosts had left unto us a very small remnant, we should have been as Sodom, and we should have been like unto Gomorrah. Hear the, hear the word of the Lord, ye rulers of Sodom, give ear unto the law of our God, ye people of Gomorrah. Let's pray, Father. Again, we we enter your presence humbly, asking you to speak to our hearts, to challenge us, to make us uh, uncomfortable with what we are doing and and maybe who we are and what we're expecting of you and attempting for you. Would you challenge us this morning through your word not to do something because a speaker said it, but maybe to Become something because you've stirred it in our hearts. We thank you, Lord, that you use us who are just people, with all of our brokenness and all of our imperfections. You and your great wisdom have chosen to use us. We thank you that you love us in spite of ourselves, and and you know us to the most deepest part of us you know us completely and yet you love us to be known and yet to be loved what a glorious glorious thing oh god that no matter those secrets or that sin or that part of us that we so desperately try to hide or to to cover up in front of others you know it and we can say in all boldness that you love us. How great you are. Stir us, I pray, in Jesus' good name, amen. So we see, in a, 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 we're, we're entering a courtroom this morning in, in Isaiah one. We see God in front, and he's calling all of creation into the courtroom to become tes, um, testigos, or to become um, testifiers, witnesses. There's the word. This is the first time i preached in English in, I think, a year or two years or something like that, so bear with me. So, he's calling all of creation to be witness in this judicial proceeding where God is the judge and and Israel, as it were, were standing before him to be judged. And let's see how he starts off in verse 2, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. I've nourished and brought up children and they've rebelled against me." So, those of us who are parents, I mean, isn't it amazing, once you become a, a mother or father, the, the different way that you're able to appreciate God, when the Bible uses the illustration of God's our Father, and, and you just see a whole new way of looking at the world when you're, when you're a parent, because when you're a kid, you know, it doesn't, you, don't, you, don't, you just don't know that much, right? Uh, You you think you know lots, but you really don't. And then when you become a parent, you see everything as danger, and and you see the expense that goes into raising a child, both financially, emotionally, right? Uh, Just pouring yourself into a child, and that's what God is saying about the people of Israel. I've nourished you and brought you up. You know, just the way as 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 a parent, a mom or a dad, the way that... I mean, it's expensive to raise kids. We're here and we're like buying clothes, right? For the, for the girls and you go to the checkout at Target and it's like, goodness, how much is that? And then you have to buy them groceries because they want to eat, and you know? And then you have to buy them school supplies and then you have to drive them around. I didn't know that as a parent I would be an Uber for free, but that's pretty much all I do all day is. Drive my kids around, right? We want to go to the mall. We want to go to our friend's house. We want to go here or there. You know, so there's a, an, a financial expense involved with raising kids. But beyond that, money is very little in comparison to the emotional expense in raising kids because you're pouring your life and you really want to do the best that you can to, to see your kids grow up and, I don't know, be a success at life and 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 have a happy life and, and and. There's so much that goes into that emotionally and God's saying, I've, I've tried to do that with Israel, but what was their response? What did they repay him with? He says, I've, I've raised children, I've nourished them and brought them up and they have rebelled against me. I've tried to make them strong with that great force of, of God, the creator of the universe. And we're, we're very much imperfect parents, but God's a perfect parent. And God perfectly tried to raise up Israel, and they, even as a perfect dad, they rebelled against their perfect dad. And how, you know, my, my girls are right at the precipice of that age. Our oldest is, just turned 16 last week. You know, so it's like, Whoa, we're getting into the serious business, right, of parenting. We have 16, uh, 14, uh, 11, and, and 7. So we are, like, in the thick of it. And now with the 16-year-old, you're, like, just a few years away from college, and you're really, like, oh, boy, here's where the rubber meets the road, right? And, and you don't, and my heart would break if if, if our kids were to wander from the Lord, or, or I don't know, something were to happen, there a relationship with us, and I'm an imperfect parent, but imagine God the perfect parent, and we rebelled. Israel rebelled. But it's not just that they rebelled. Verse 3 says, and God, again, He's, He's ju- in this process, this judicial proceeding, He's calling creation to look, and He uses... Really a very charming example to to show how they've rebelled. He says, the ox knows his owner, and the ass, or the donkey, knows his master's crib. But Israel does not know. Israel does not know. My people don't even consider. So basically what he's saying is Israel, or us, are not even as smart as an ass or as an ox. It's a Bible word. We can say that, right? Israel is not as smart as a donkey or an ox. You aren't even that smart. I mean, that's pretty, that's cutting right to the bone. Now, for us, we could just say, well, I mean, he's talking about Israel. This is obviously, if you look at the exegetical analysis of the thing, you'll definitely see this is directly towards Israel. But come on, let's be honest with ourselves. Have any of us ever rebelled against the Lord? Have any of us known the way home to the Lord and said, mm, just don't want to go there. Just not ready to go home. Why? Because we have a horrible Father God waiting for us at home? No, it's just we're just having too much fun running the other way. And we've been we've been deceived into thinking that the that the that what Else is being offered out there is going to be better than Jesus and Jesus is saying but it's not come back come back and now he's at the point where he's telling Israel Israel doesn't even know he's rebelling Israel is rebelling and then it goes on to say in verse number four sinful nation people laden with sin laden with iniquity so they're way down by sin So their rebellion is really severe. You're a seed of evildoers. Children that are corruptors. They've forsaken the Lord. So not only are they rebelling against the Lord, but here it says they've forsaken the Lord. They've gone beyond beyond just a rebellion against their father. They are just completely turned their back on him. They've forsaken God. They've provoked the Holy One of Israel unto anger and they've gone away backwards. So basically everything that the instructions, the instruction manual said to do, they've done it backwards. They've done the opposite. And as a parent, just thinking about on a, on a parent level, thinking about that for your kids and you know lots of times or you can get it, get a you know what's gonna happen if they make this decision or they go with that group and, and your heart breaks because, because you were there. And of course, we heard it from our parents. I was a teenager once too, and we all said, yeah, whatever. And now that we are the parents saying that to our kids and we look, see the same face of disbelief, but you were a, a teenager back in the dark ages. You've got no idea what's going on, but no, I do know what's going on. And that's the way that's gonna to lead to destruction. That's exactly what God's telling them. Laden with sin, the sinful nation, seed of evildoers. They've provoked the Holy One. So Israel's rebelling. And then we see in verse number five, they're they're, again going beyond rebelling. So why should you be stricken anymore? You'll revolt. You, You will revolt more and more. So what he's saying is what our parents all said to us, do you want another one? Why should you be stricken anymore? Do you need do you need another one? you know we didn't have timeouts when I was growing up, right so that's basically the heart of what, G- what God is saying here. Do you need another one? When is it going to take for you to learn your lesson? Why should you be stricken anymore? Why do I need to keep on Correcting you, punishing you, disciplining you to get you back on what's it going to take for you to get back home? He said, The whole head is sick, the whole heart is faint. They're, they're insisting, they're resisting the discipline of the Lord. So they're rebelling against God, and then God sends that corrective discipline. Not, in, not just, for, I, I think there's a big difference between punishment and discipline. Punishment really does not have in mind connecting with the the child or with the other person. But discipline really has the the good of the child. When we punish our kids, we're just thinking about we're angry and frustrated and and we want them to suffer. When we're disciplining them, we're wanting to restore relationship and get them on the right track. and, And they're resisting the discipline of the Lord. How long do you need another one? I mean, good, why are you gonna keep on going and resisting the correction of your heavenly Father who only has the best in in mind for you? So now we're seeing in verse number six to verse number nine a description of what sin has done to the people of Israel. what, what, What does the effects of their rebellion and their resisting of God, what has it done to them? He says, from the sole of your foot, even to the head, there's no soundness, there's no healthiness. From the bottom of your foot to the top of your head, there's nothing that is healthy in your body right now. That sin affects us in ways, spiritually, emotionally, physically, that sometimes we just do not appreciate that we don't understand. There's no soundness. What is there? There's wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. Wow. Everywhere, covered. Israel here standing before the Lord and God is pointing out, look, you are covered in bruises and wounds and your sin is affecting you. You you need to be taken care of. He says, they've not been closed, neither bound up, neither mollified with ointment. It's like, You've not even been to the doctor. You're quite obviously sick. You're quite obviously hurt. You have open wounds all over your body, and you don't even care. You're, you're not even looking to get it healed up. You're not even applying any medicine. You're not, even, you're not even doing anything to take care of the issues that's going on. You're just oblivious, and if we pretend it doesn't exist, you're, you, you think it's going to go away. That's not the way it works. From the head to their feet it says your country is desolate your your cities are burned with fire your land uh your land strangers are de- devouring it in your presence it's desolate as overthrown by strangers so now moving on from the example of their bodies to the example of their country their nation it's it's burned with fire Here he says, it's as if somebody has entered your house, a robber has entered your house. Imagine the indignity that you'd you'd feel if if there was a robber that entered your house and tied you up and sat at your table and began eating food out of your refrigerator. Just eating there in front of you, something that you worked hard to, to, to provide for your family and to add insult to injury, he's just gonna sit there and have a meal in front of you. And he's like, Israel you don't even care it's not even bothering you it's like you're indifferent to this how I, I, he, I don't even understand how, how to, to deal with that and the daughter of Zion is left as a cottage in a vineyard, as a lodge in a garden of cucumbers, as a besieged city. Uh, that, for me, threw me for a loop. But what in the world does that mean? A lodge in a garden of cucumbers basically mean you're uh, you're a house in the middle of a field surrounded by your protection is a bunch of watermelons. I don't know if you ever built a wall out of watermelons, but it's probably not going to keep you safe from an enemy attack, right? Yeah. They're just going to eat their way through it, and you're you're toast. So what he's saying is your body is completely sick, your country has been sacked, has been been devoured by the enemy, and your protection is non-existent. You've got cucumbers and watermelons protecting you. Not going to do very much against an armed enemy. And this is the effects and the life of the people of Israel. They are completely and utterly devastated, and they seem to not either care or notice. Except the Lord of hosts had left unto us a very small small remnant, we should have been as Sodom, and we should have been like unto Gomorrah. And now he says in verse 10, here's where Israel gets the, the, the direct charges. Now, the principal of my high school and I were on a first-name basis. I don't know if there was anybody else like that. We knew each other quite well. And I remember one time in particular, I got called to the principal's office, and I was on the way to the principal's office. And in my mind, I'm thinking, I could tell by the tone of the the, the call that this is not to say congratulations, you won the best student award, but I'm getting in trouble for something. So on my way, I'm thinking through all of the things that I had done in recent memory for which the principal could theoretically get me in trouble for, punish me for, suspend me for, or expel me for, or whatever. And so I'm building my defense as I'm very slowly taking my time building my defense in my mind of what I could do for point one, two, three, four, five. Whichever one he pulled out, I'm trying to have my defense ready because I was also quite adept at building excuses, right? And, And then I got there and it was something totally different, not expected. And he totally got me, I had no defense. But let's look what the, what the crimes are of Israel. What has made them be so uh, putrefying sores and bruises and they've got the cucumbers for the defense and, and their uh, robbers have eaten all of their food and they're just desolate. What's the crime? What have they done? What's wrong? What's the problem? Hear the word of the Lord, ye rulers of Sodom. Give ear unto the law of, the, uh, of our God, ye people of Gomorrah. So what he's saying is you're not... For an Israelite to be called a sodomite on a people of Gomorrah, not the biggest compliment for the people of Israel, but he's saying, that's who you are. And now verse 11. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices? I'm full of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed beasts. I delight not in the blood of bullocks of lambs or of goats. And when you come to appear before me, here we go, who has required it of your hand to tread my courts? So anybody find anything weird about that? Who has required you to come to temple, to come to church? Who has required you to offer sacrifices, to offer offerings before the Lord? Can you imagine? I'm thinking, this is not in there. This is in my little brain, being a little bit active, thinking in my holy imagination, what's going on in the people of Israel's brain when Isaiah says, who has required this of your hand? Or who's asked you to do all of these sacrifices? In my mind, I'm thinking, well, the first five books of the Bible were written by Moses, and they're all full of commands of God to sacrifice the bull, bulls and goats and lambs and uh, all the incense offerings and oil offerings and this, that, and the other. So I'm not trying to be snippy, Isaiah, but God kind of did, right? Does that make sense? What, what are we getting in trouble for when he's the one who asked us to do it? He says, what is, I, I'm, I'm full of burnt offerings. And the fat of fed beasts, I delight not in the blood of bullocks and of lambs or of goats. Who's asked this of you? Verse 13, man, he really starts to lay in on. He says, bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. Your new moons and your Sabbaths, the calling of assemblies, I cannot away with. I just am sick of it. It is, look at it, it is iniquity, it is sin, even the solemn meeting. So all of these things, these sacrifices, these offerings, the incense that God required of them, he says, it is iniquity to me. It is sin to me. Can you imagine pastor getting up here next Sunday morning and calling you all sinners? Why are we sinners? Because you came to church, because you sang the congregational, song, the, the praise songs, because you made an offering. It's sin to me. Whoa, relax. Take a chill pill, Pastor. What's going on? These are things that God told them to do, and He's saying it's sin. Unbelievable. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They're trouble to me. I'm weary to bear them. And when you, look at this in verse 15. And when you spread forth your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. When you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. What? Anybody else confused at this point? We just got through reading that Israel was full of bruises. They're, they're defenseless. They're completely ransacked by their enemies. They are, are, are just in so much trouble. And what are the crimes of, that they've committed? It is sacrificing, offering incense, showing up to assembly, to meeting, to church, keeping the, the, the rituals that God had commanded them to keep. It says now in verse 16, here we go. Israel's invited to to make a true show of faith in God. Verse 16, wash you, make you clean, put away the evil of your doings from before mine eyes, cease to do evil. Learn to do well, seek judgment, relieve the oppressed, judge the fatherless, plead for the widow. So all of that to get here. They were doing all the right things, but their heart was a million miles from God. A lot of times when when we, we talk to people about foster adoption, mentoring, big brother, big sister programs. Oh, I'd really love to, but that just seems like really hard. I don't know if I have the time. I'm not sure that that that's necessarily my calling. See, everybody's really excited about impacting their world for Jesus. so long as it's not hard. I want to really impact my neighborhood and my school, my workplace for Christ and make an impact just as long as it doesn't cost me anything. Or I'm going to show up for church every single Sunday and that's it for the rest of the week. It'd be like, it'd be like pastor calling all the men for a meeting. Hey, we're going to meet in one of the rooms here after service, 10 minutes. And just really laying in to all the men for being terrible husbands and terrible fathers and saying, guys, you know what you got to do this week? I want everybody to go out, buy their wife some flowers. And, and, you know, we're going to have a meeting this, this Friday night. And it's going to be a men's meeting. And it is going to be, it is going to be on. You guys are going to get lit up being men uh, and and leaders in your homes. So two groups of men leave. One group goes and buys the flowers Monday afternoon, rings the doorbell, doesn't walk in the door, rings the doorbell. Wife comes to the door, gives the flowers. Oh, what's what's the flowers for? It's not my birthday, it's not our anniversary. Well, sweetheart, pastor said he was going to ask on Sunday who bought their wife flowers this week, and I didn't want to be the only guy to not buy them, so here's your flowers. Those flowers are going to be either in the trash or up the guy's nose in a, in, you know, as soon as can be. The other guy shows up, same thing, rings the doorbell, wife comes to the door. Hey, honey, I got your flowers why'd you give me flowers now we all know that pastor said to do it but he's not going to be dumb enough to say that he's going to say you know what hon pastor called us into that meeting sunday after church he really just challenged us as men to love our wives better and i realized i wasn't loving you like i should i really love you and i'm more in love with you today than i was the day we were married and you are just everything to me and i'm so glad you're married to me and you're more beautiful today than the day we got married and and, and, and you're with me through thick and thin, and I just, I'm crazy about you, babe, and I just wanted to get you some flowers. Where are those flowers going? Those are going on the dining room table in a beautiful vase. Now, what's the difference? Both guys showed up with flowers. Heart. Heart. Because my wife is more concerned with the reason I'm buying flowers than that I'm buying flowers. Don't you think God is too? Don't you think God isn't like, oh boy, I really hope they come to church because I just really need them to be here and they didn't come. Oh. And then we show up and he's like, oh, they love me. They really love me. No. God doesn't need us, right? Right? He's complete. He's perfect. He wants for our good for us to see that He is good and He is beautiful and that we would worship Him and serve Him not in order that we would be loved but that because we have been loved. And so our service is an offering of, of love and devotion to Him because He is beautiful and He is wonderful and He is our Savior and He has loved us. And so we don't show up here be, be, because we're doing it out of guilt or be out of some kind Kind of command, but that we're singing and we're, we're preaching and we're listening to preaching and we're studying and knowing God and serving God in our community because He has been so good. And that's what Israel forgot. They didn't forget to go to church. They just forgot to go to church out of love. They didn't forget to sing. They just forgot to go and sing out of love. And so that our service And what is the way that he describes the the evidence or evidences? How does Isaiah or how does God evidence the lack of love? Well, it's very easy. He says, learn to do well, seek judgment, relieve the oppressed, judge the fatherless, plead for the widows. He's saying everything you're doing in your Christian life and even your service and showing up and your singing seems to be all about you, and nobody is feeling the effects of your Christianity. See, in James 1.27, when it says, true religion is to visit the, the widow and the orphan in their need, it's not a command. Did you realize that? It's not a command. James is not saying, you better go visit the orphan and the widow. He's just saying, if you have true religion, this is what's gonna happen. In other words, if you have true religion, others will feel the warmth of that fire. You've seen in the, in the stores or on Amazon, the, the fake fireplaces that just have like a fan and a red light and a little piece of cloth that flame, right? You get up to that, there's no warmth. But you get near a real fire, hey, there's warmth. You can feel it. If you're a Christian and Jesus is real and you have true religion, other people will feel the warmth of that fire. You know, we we hear the, we've seen Matthew 25, a, a verse that probably, if you've been in church a while, you probably know. Uh, where where Jesus is talking, he says, Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come, this is talking about at the end of time, he's going to say to the people on his right hand, Come ye, blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom, prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Uh, Because I was hungry, and you gave me meat. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you gave me clothing. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, you came to me. And then the righteous will answer When did we see you hungry? When did we see you thirsty? When did we clothe you? When did we see you a stranger and take you in? And the king answered and said unto them, Verily I say to you, Inasmuch as you have done it unto one of the least of these my brethren, you have done it unto me. Do you want to give a glass of water to Jesus? Jesus was hanging on the cross. He said, I thirst. And we think, because we're super spiritual Christians, we think, Oh, I would have gone and got him a glass of cold water and offered it up because the only thing they gave him was vinegar. And he is the savior of the world. He is my God. He is my king. I'd have given him a glass of water. I would have offered him the the most uh, clean, crystal clear water. And and I would have done everything that I could to have offered the very best for him. You, You want to give Jesus a glass of water? Do it to one of the least of these. You wanna take Jesus into your home? Do it to one of the least of these. You wanna give Jesus who hungered a sandwich? Do it to one of the least of these. You wanna give Jesus clothing? Do it to one of the least of these. If nobody is feeling the warmth of your Christianity, Friend, there might not be anything there. Now I'm not saying what we need to do is on the way out, we've got uh, Child Protective Services here and everybody on their way out is gonna grab, uh, everybody take home a kid, I'm not saying that. What I am saying is, that might be one way to do it. Maybe being a big brother, big sister might be a way to do it, but somebody needs to feel that warmth. Who's feeling the warmth of your Christianity? Where is your faith? The whole book of James, the whole book of James is all about. If you have faith, if you are really a Christian, people will see it and feel it. That's the whole point of the book. So tell me, who sees it and feels it in your life? Now, as a church, for the last few hundred years, we've we've relegated the work of orphan care and vulnerable children care, and even the, or, the the widow. Which I would say, the widow. I always tell our churches in Paraguay, the widow in the 21st century is that 15-year-old pregnant girl who got kicked out of her house. And it's really easy for churches to get real judgmental, and point the finger and say some nasty things, and it's another thing I think Jesus would have done, would have gone up and given that little precious girl a hug. Said, hey, baby, we'll, we'll love you. We'll show you how to be a good mama. We've got right now, uh, next week, uh, one of our mentors, couple, a young couple, they're going to be starting Big Brother, Big Sister program to a 14-year-old mother with a two-year-old little baby, one year, one-and-a-half-year-old little baby. And I'm like, that is a picture of the gospel if ever there was one. Because we were orphaned, and we were alone, and we were helpless. And who took us in? Jesus did. Was it because he saw us and said, man, I need to get them on my team. I don't know what I'd do without Brian. No. It was because he is good, and he loved us before we loved him. And he loved us knowing all of the problems that would come being involved in loving a rebellious person like Brian but he loved me anyway. He loved you anyway. And so maybe we'll just sit there for a while and think about Isaiah chapter number one in a different way this morning. Because it's really easy to say, oh, it's Israel. Oh, it's the community. Oh, it's our city. Oh, it's our country. Oh, it's our... And maybe we'll just kind of focus in on, hone in on, MAYBE GOD'S TRYING TO STIR ME UP OR PRICK ME TO DO SOMETHING I'D NEVER CONSIDERED DOING. I REMEMBER WHEN WE FIRST GOT TO PARAGUAY, THERE'S little, LITTLE BOYS AND GIRLS ON THE on the STREET. THEY'D SELL CANDY AT THE STOPLIGHTS, OR THEY'D TRY TO CLEAN YOUR WINDSHIELD. IF YOU DIDN'T GIVE THEM WHAT WOULD BE a, BASICALLY A QUARTER FOR CLEANING YOUR WINDSHIELD, THEY'D TURN AROUND and SMACK YOUR CAR, YOU KNOW, BREAK YOUR WINDSHIELD, OR SCRATCH THE PAINT, OR WHATEVER. I REMEMBER GETTING SO, ANNOYED AND FRUSTRATED WITH THOSE LITTLE PUNK KIDS. OH, LITTLE PUNKS. AND THEN WE MET THEM. THEN THEY HAD A NAME. AND CHANGED REAL QUICK. I REMEMBER GETTING SO FRUSTRATED WITH THE PARENTS OF THE KIDS THAT WE WERE SERVING, THE BIOLOGICAL PARENTS OF THE KIDS WE WERE SERVING IN in CARE, AND YOU THINK, Terrible dad, we're a terrible mother. And then you hear their story. And there's just a broken little girl, broken little boy inside that adult's body who nobody ever decided to love. And these kids are gonna grow up, and they're gonna be broken adults if nobody steps in and says, you know what? I want to change the world for Jesus, even if it costs a little bit of time. A LITTLE BIT OF MONEY, A LOT OF TEARS, COULD BE EVEN BLOOD. BUT BECAUSE JESUS DID IT FOR ME, I'LL DO IT FOR for ONE OF THE LEAST OF THESE. LET'S PRAY, PASTOR. JOHN, uh, uh, WE'RE SO THANKFUL THIS MORNING. WE'RE SO THANKFUL THIS MORNING, FATHER, THAT YOU LOVED US, THE HIGH PRICE THAT YOU WERE WILLING TO PAY FOR OUR SALVATION. HOW GOOD YOU'VE BEEN TO US. that we, in spite of ourselves, have been loved by a a faithful father who does not give up on us, who does not quit, who's loved us with an everlasting love. Though you know everything about us, we are known and loved. What a wonderful, wonderful Savior. Jesus' name.